First Family. God bless you today. It is a joy to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? I'm telling you, friends, it is a joy to bring to you the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. We follow up the last two weeks where we talked about living transformed, and we talked about how we express that. Well, today we enter into a section where the Apostle Paul is a little bit like a short-order cook. He's just flipping those burgers off like there's nothing to it. Really short, staccato-based statements where he declares some things are absolutely true, and here's what to do about it. If we were to sum up this whole section that my friend Mark read so well, we would say, live peacefully. If there's a more challenging thing to do in our culture and our time than this, I don't know what it is. Living peacefully. The only people that we can live peacefully with, and not always that, is ourselves. It seems like everywhere we have a constant battle that's going on all around us. The push and pull of the drama in which we live is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Oh, but friends, don't miss that last part, the second half of that verse. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Today, we're going to dive off into this conversation, and I'll warn you now, it's not easy, for it drags some things out of our closets, the skeletons that live there, and causes us to say, God, what do you mean for me to do about this? My prayer is that the transformation that we talked about two weeks ago will begin to take hold now as God gives you application steps of what that should look like. Let's pray together as we begin. We, your people, Lord Jesus, have gathered in this place to proclaim your goodness as we already have and to hear from your word. My prayer today, Jesus, is that you would, in these few minutes we'll spend together, illuminate our hearts and minds with your word. Transform us even further, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit power come in this place and change us, Lord. Don't let us become satisfied and content with where we are when you've called us to live peacefully. In a world that drags us, it seems, toward war at every moment. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this moment we would be transformed by you and that these words would become the clarion call of how to live that out. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to take you back to Romans 12:9, where the Apostle Paul starts the conversation with Here's how to get started. Here's what he says. Love sincerely in an insincere world. The insincerity, the lack of authenticity of love that we see around us is glaring. That's why the Apostle Paul starts where he does in verse 9. Let love be genuine. And as in case we didn't get that clearly, it's hidden in the Greek, but I'll tell it to you. This is an imperative. In other words, if you don't get anything else done, do this. Set aside everything else, rake the table clean, and do this. Love must be 
sincere. It's got to come from the inside out. Here's what I mean. Sincere love leads to loving action for the good and an intuitive rejection of the bad. Sincere love causes us to say, yeah, this starts on the inside, for it cannot find its way in unless I choose it. A lot of us want to choose to fake it till we make it. But I'm going to tell you, with love like this, you can't get there. Sincere love calls me to something deeper than mere emotion. It incites me. It causes me to be moved from where I am to where God wants me to be. Now, feelings might get me started, but they won't be enough to sustain me. There must be a will behind it to act, to set my points ahead and say, that's the direction I'm going to go. If love is to be genuine, it's got to be deliberate. And the choice of setting one's affection on Christ means choosing to love his body too. We, the church, are his body. Now, there's a lot of people who will bring to you stories about insincere love within the church. And there have been many who've said, well, because I've been burned at this church or that church, then I'm just done with church altogether. Let me tell you why I think that's foolish talk, all right? Not so many years ago, I went to a particular restaurant that I loved dearly. Something that upset my stomach, and you know what? Man, it was not a pretty sight. I was sick for the better part of two days. But you know what? An amazing thing happened. I did not stop eating. Not at all. In fact, as soon as I was over that, I went right back. Not only to eating, but eating at that restaurant. You might say, well, that's foolish. Isn't it, though? But it causes me to say, sincerity compels me. Sincerity, it starts when I choose it. There are broken people all around us, including us. Don't let them dissuade you from sincere love anyway. Here's the second half of it. Abhor evil. Now, abhor, that's not a word that we use a lot. Perhaps it deserves a little bit of definition. It means an abject rejection. Kicking it out the front door, don't you ever come back here again. It means that I'm going to recognize love and evil cannot coexist. I can have one or I can have the other, but I cannot have both. Evil. It pretends to be love. It calls your attention and says, if you love me, you'll think this way. But let me tell you, friends, Evil thrives on its own wicked intent. The brokenness of people causes us to recognize it for what it is. Here's the problem. In our culture, to call something evil is a value judgment. And we can't do that, right? Because after all, who are we to judge? How many times have I heard that? I see these people that said, only God can judge me. And I want to go up and tap them on the shoulder and say, and you can be sure he will. I want to tell you, friends, there are some things that are evil. Okay, Darren, that's just your opinion. No, it's God's opinion right here in his word. There are some things that he says, don't do these things. You need a list of them? Find it in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, he says, put to death 
these things and put on these other things. Can I tell you today, my friends, this rejection of evil ought to cause us to recognize that Satan's going to try to trick us. He's going to try to make evil look good. He's going to try to sneak it in the back door. He's going to dress it up so you'll not call it what it is and not recognize it for what it is. Can I tell you today, my friends, if it's outside of God's word, if it's outside of God's will, it's evil, period. And I want to encourage you to recognize today, God's not mad about it. He's just holy, and his holiness cannot abide by evil. If we want to live transformed lives, and we want our lives to be like Christ, we've got to follow suit. That's why the Apostle Paul moves on to the next thing. Hold fast to what is good. Cling to the good. Now, when I think of the word cling, I think of just one thing, and I am convinced these these are objects of Satan sent to torment me, all right? Dryer sheets. So I go to Washington, D.C. to represent our church at an official gathering. I'm walking in the, in, in, in the National Mall. I'm on my way from point to point, and I feel something down at the bottom of my leg, and I look down, and there's a dryer sheet sneaking out that has clung to my clothes and ridden with me from Midland all the way to Washington, waiting until then to jump out. Messenger of Satan, I'm telling you. Fast forward to Christmas of this last year. We are in a Christmas program, and I'm standing on the platform. It's an awesome day, and all of a sudden I see a dryer sheet start sneaking out from my sleeve. Messenger of Satan, I'm telling you. Now somebody, I said that in the first service, they said, you know, Darren, you can pull those out of your clothes and laundry. You don't have to let them stay there. I know, but that wouldn't make a very good story, would it? I want to encourage you to recognize what cling looks like. It means that you hang on to it with every fiber of your being. You don't let it slip away, nor do you let it escape your sight. Evil is always going to be hanging around. Clinging on to the good means that you're going to embrace it. Let's move on to verse 10. Love freely. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The kind of love we're to offer is the kind that is intimate and kind. A kinship that offers tenderness and understanding. It also offers correction when it's necessary. These are the marks that we want on our lives, and that's why he calls it brotherly affection. Notice the last half of verse 10, outdo one another in showing affection. When I was summarizing it, it came out this way, second fiddle is first rate. Outdo one another means that you have two servants, each one trying to outserve the other one. Ha! This connects with the command of humility that we find in verses 3 to 8. Now for us, the surrender of rights in order to outdo one another in service and love, means that I get the chance to be like Jesus by surrendering my rights. Now, for some of you, as soon as I said the word rights, you shuddered. We have a, a real tight fixation as Americans on the word rights. 
We want to protect them. We want them validated. We want to ensure that nobody infringes on them. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's correct. That's true. There's nothing wrong with that until it gets to Scripture. Our rights are secondary because Jesus exalted himself by surrendering his. If we are to be like Jesus, then we're going to have to do the same. That's countercultural, Darren. You can't surrender your rights. People will abuse you. Oh, you mean like hanging me on the cross? See, if I'm going to be transformed, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be neat. It's not going to be clean. And it certainly won't end with me on a throne. It means that I, to be like Jesus, must surrender my rights in order that I can outdo others in showing honor. Keep your zeal intact, the Apostle Paul says in verse 11. Don't be lazy in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. What does this mean? It means don't forget why you started. Don't lose the energy God gave you when you got saved. Don't allow laziness a place in your service to the Lord, but keep that fervency, that zeal, that excitement on the ready. Sort of like the song that we ended our singing time with, the Hymn of Heaven, written by Phil Wickham. I can't, I can't begin to tell you how bad I want to stand up in my truck when I'm hearing that song. What a joy it is to be reminded of the hope that we have lying ahead for us. Because of that, we can press on. And get this, it's not just up to us to do it. The Holy Spirit indwelling us continues to move us along. It sort of reminds me of a story that I heard, and I don't know that it's true, it was about a boat party, a party on a boat, I should say, and things were hopping. The party had been going for a while, and even though the weather was kind of cool, it was a joyous ride. That is, until a young lady fell overboard. In a flash, a 70-year-old man jumped and was in the water with her. They were both pulled back to safety. There was a great celebration as everybody lauded the hero, yay! He was wiping himself down with his towel, and he said, I just have one thing to say. I want to know who pushed me in. <laughs> Maybe his heart was in the right place even if his body wasn't, right? Maybe his body was in the right place even if his heart wasn't. I want you to see the opportunity to serve sometimes needs a little nudge. Ask God to give you that nudge today, would you? Here's another thing that we, we come upon in verse 13. Rejoicing in what lies ahead for us, patient waiting for it to come, and constantly praying that it will be soon. Verse 12 is almost like the Apostle Paul has a pump-action shotgun. Bang, bang, bang. He's firing these things off because he wants us to be focused, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Like the other verses, the other verbs in verses 9 to 11, these are all imperatives. These are things we must do. Rejoice, wait, praying. Our focus and our vision should be on the home that we have ahead. But not to forget those that are around us while we're on our way. Pursue generosity of your wallet and your home. That's what verse 13 says. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
Church family, let me brag on you for just a second. We set a goal for our Lottie Moon Christmas offering of $150,000. That money is money that goes overseas to support missions and missionaries all over the world. None of it stays local, all of it goes out. It is a wonderful blessing and privilege to say we collected over $152,000. I think that deserves a round of applause, don't you? Your generosity, friends, is making an eternity's worth of difference in lives all over the world that we will never see. It's one thing to serve them way over there when we can just send money, but this isn't the all that the apostle is calling us to do. Seek to show hospitality. We have an opportunity, friends, and I want to talk with you about it very briefly. It'll be a conversation we have tonight at our church conference, and I want to encourage you to be there if you're interested in hearing more details. One of our mission partners, they brought to us a group of Chinese believers who escaped China. They brought them to Midland through a long story and long course of events, and they have taken up residence here. They were persecuted in China, and now we have the blessed privilege of having them here. About three weeks ago, they came to my office and they said, Darren, we have felt so welcome in your church and we felt so loved in the times that we've been here that we want to ask if we can meet in your building all the time. While that's an exciting privilege, it's also a messy one. Have you ever thought about when you first got married? and how incredibly selfish you discovered you were. How all of a sudden these, these habits that you had that didn't bother you at all when you were single are glaringly obvious now that someone else is living with you. That, friends, is why we're talking about it tonight. This is a wonderful and blessed privilege, but it's one that will come with its own price. I want to encourage you to be here tonight as we talk about it. My prayer is that we'll say yes to it, enthusiastically, passionately, fulfilling the command of Christ in Romans 12, 13. But even if we don't, I think the Spirit of God will give us the opportunity to do so. Here's the opportunity we really have. We get to teach them not only what it means to be Americans, but we get to show them what Texan hospitality looks like. I want to encourage you, be here tonight to be a part of that. That's one thing to give of a building. It's another thing to give of yourself. I read biographies pretty regularly, and I read one not long ago called When Character Was King, written by Peggy Noonan. She was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan back 40 years ago. In the summer of 1988, they had an event that transpired that caused her to reflect it in the book. You see, there was this lady, not a noteworthy lady, not an important lady, not a well-known lady. Her name was Frances. There was this lady who contributed $1 annually to the Republican National Committee. She contributed that dollar faithfully, faithfully. And one day, an envelope showed up at her house, a fancy one. And it was from the Republican National Committee. It said, Dear Frances, we'd love to have you join us for a reception in the White House she missed the last line with your generous donation of X number of dollars and an RSVP. She stopped where it said, come to the White House on this particular day. So 
Frances wasn't a lady of means, but she scratched together enough money for a train ticket. A train ticket! Because it was cheaper. And for three days, she rode across the country to get from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. Frances arrives, and on the appointed day, at the appointed time, she shows up with her invitation in hand. And this 88-year-old grandmother shows up and shows it to the guard at the gate who says, I'm sorry, Francis, your name is not on the list. You cannot come in. Shattered, she stepped back to gather her thoughts. She didn't know there was a man standing right behind her, a Ford executive who had served the Carter administration as well as the Reagan administration, said Monaghan was right behind her. He watched all this play out and pulled her aside said, Francis, tell me your story. And so he t she told him the whole bloody mess. And then he pointed out to her about the donation and the RSVP at the bottom. Heart sick. She turned to go and Seth grabbed her. He said, wait, wait, wait. So I can't get you in today, but are you going to be in D.C. for a couple of days? She said she would. Hang on and let me do what I can. Maybe we can work this out. Two days later, he called her and said, okay, we're ready. Come at this particular time to this particular gate, and I'll be waiting for you. Indeed, he was. He took her by the arm and led her all through the White House. Oh, man, what a tour she had. See, he had gone inside and talked to all those that he knew, the staff who worked there all the time. He talked to the officials. He cleared her with security and got all those pieces in place. And can I tell you today, friends, she had the time of her life. She'd never had an experience like that. Tour was beginning to wind down. They were nearing the Oval Office. Said it warned her, I'm not sure the president has time. He's very busy today, but maybe we can peek in and see him sitting behind his desk. The door creaked open and Francis peered in and there he was, sitting right behind the desk. President Reagan looked up and said, Francis, these doggone computers have got us all messed up. If I'd have known you were coming, I'd have picked you up myself. Come in here and sit down and talk. Now, he did not have time for a visit with an 88-year-old nobody. But he made time. She walked in like a head of state, sat down on the couch in the Oval Office, and they, for an hour, talked like they were old friends. Both having been California, they knew some the same places and the opportunity to bless her was President Reagan's. That, friends, is generosity of self. Now you might say, well, I didn't like President Reagan. I didn't vote for him. Well, that's okay. You don't have to. We could have told the same story about some others. But this is the essence of generosity giving of yourself first. Plug this into your life. Two things right quick. One, living with love in action will ensure authenticity. Love is an action and a lifestyle, not an emotion. If you're waiting for a, a feeling to be the tide that pushes you, you will forever be waiting. The second part goes right along with it. God's grace enables a transformed character. A transformation takes place as I move from who I was when Jesus found me to who he wants me to be. Romans 12, 14 through 16 takes us to the next step. 
So what do we do with those who won't let us love them? Living in harmony with people is the next topic that Paul chooses to embrace. (laughs) Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So I thought about this a lot. How to express this. And I happened upon the translation known as the message. On the screen now are some, uh, a translation of the same verse from the message. <coughs> Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. This, this, friends, is the hardest piece of being at peace with people, especially those who want ill for you. It's a reflection of Matthew 5.44 where Jesus, Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. Luke 6.27 where Jesus says, go the second mile. Jesus' command is clear. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is inverse from what we're told everywhere else. All friends, but this is why Jesus is different and why a transformed life is the only thing that will get us there. This is not theoretical for the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about that next week. He lives around the enemies of the people of God in first century Rome. At the same time, the call is just the same. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It comes right behind it and says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is continuing the theme that we had earlier of harmonious and humble living that means sharing, blessing, and suffering. If we are one body, and indeed we are, then the only thing that's wise is to double our joy when we share it and half our grief when we share it. And thank God both of those are true. When we give ourselves over to our community, Conceit is no longer a problem because we remember all of us started in the same place. Broken, needy sinners whom Jesus redeemed. It also causes us to be humble because it says we realize, gosh, Jesus did this for me. I want you to plug this in. We must decide in advance how we'll live with our enemies. If we wait, if we wait until the enemy is at the gate, it won't be so easy. Now let's hurry and rush through the last section here. Overcoming evil with good begins by refusing to retaliate. Romans 12, 17 through 21. When evil comes, and it will, how will I respond? What will I do? I know evil is just around the corner. How will I respond? Well, let's let it not be like this story. Man visits a doctor and gets the bad news that indeed that dog bite he had a couple of days earlier had given him rabies. The doctor tells him that and immediately the man reaches into his pocket, pulls out his phone and starts making notes just furiously. The doctor's rather confused and he says, Are you writing out your last will and testament? He said, no, without even looking up. He said, I'm making a list of all the people I'm going to (laughs) bite. When evil comes, and it will, how will I respond? 
Paul's words to us, starting in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the hardest line in perhaps all of the book of Romans, at least this side of chapter 1. As much as it is up to you, verse 18 says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Can I tell you today, friends, the sad reality is that there are some people who thrive on chaos. They like the pot stirred. They like people to be upset. They appreciate conflict and they revel in it and its poisonous fruit. Nevertheless, our calling is unaltered. Do you know any of those people that are hard to get along with? Well, I'll tell you, friends, if you don't, the chances are good it's probably you. If it is, then here's a good chance to say, God, change my heart. Change me. If it's not you, then this is a place for you to pray, God, change my heart. Alter me so that as much as it is up to me, I'll live at peace. Here's the reality. The ultimate revenge is trusting God with it. Revenge, I mean. I can't recall that I've ever quoted Frederick Nietzsche in a sermon before, but I will today, for he has it right. Revenge is the greatest instinct in the human race. Yeah, we see it all around us, don't we? You do it to me, I'm going to do it twice back to you. But in a citation from, Roman, uh, from Proverbs 25 that you'll find there in Romans 12, 29, or 20 rather, Paul calls us to non-retaliation. In fact, he calls us to more than that. He calls us to blessing when wronged, offering kindness. It's hard to do that, isn't it? Sometimes we're like a story that Chuck Swindoll told about when he was in the Korean War back in the 50s. Chuck tells this story about some other GIs that he knew who hired a houseboy to work with him. They hired him to be their servant. They paid him well enough, but they tortured the young man. They put Vaseline on the handle so that he would get sticky fingers. They put buckets of water on the door so that when he opened it, the water would fall down on him. They even nailed his shoes to the floor. Feeling badly, the GIs got together and they decided their behavior was poor. So they went to their houseboy and they said, this is an end to it, we won't do that anymore. No more Vaseline, the houseboy said. Nope, nope. No more water? Nope, nope. No more shoes nailed down? Nope, nope. Good, he has said. Then I'll stop spitting in your soup. <laughs> yeah, that's what, we're do, what we do by nature. 
But I want us to overcome our own nature. That's what Jesus calls us to overcome. Don't settle for just who you are. Let's plug this in and we'll be done. Overcoming evil with good is a prime example of a crucified and transformed life. If Jesus is our Lord and Master, and I pray that he is for you, then don't let yourself become intoxicated with the idea that Jesus wants to strike back, the idea that Jesus hates the people that you hate. Maybe Jesus is calling you to a new way of thinking, and he's inviting you today to that transformation. Perhaps you've heard this and you're like, hey, you know what, that is crazy talk. I could never do that. Then I want to invite you to a transformation, a transformation that only Jesus can give you. He invites you to himself today. Today, right here and right now, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and here's what I want you to do. If you're one who would say, Darren, I need that kind of transformation. Loving my enemies is impossible where I am. How do I get there? Then here's what I want you to do. I want you to come down and talk with me right here. It won't be easy. Everybody be watching. But you know what? If you're that convicted, if you're that convinced that the Spirit of God is tapping you on the shoulder, this is your day. Maybe you've already done that, but you never got baptized. My friend Ernesto showed you how easy it is at the start of this service. Perhaps you need to come down and say, hey, I need to do that today. Hey, no problem. The water's still warm. We can get you done today. But maybe we want to do it another day, but get the process started. If that's you, then come down and talk with me about that. Perhaps you need someone to pray with you. I'll be waiting for you right here. Doesn't mean you have a problem. Maybe it means you're worried about somebody else. But maybe it means that God is calling you to himself. Let's pray together. So today, sweet King Jesus, we, your people, have gathered to respond to you. And we will respond, Lord, even if the answer is no. I pray, Lord, for a yes. Yes, Jesus, you are the Lord and master of my life. Yes, Jesus, I will invite your transformation to take the next step in my life. Yes, Jesus, I will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Yes, Jesus, I will bless those who persecute me. In this invitation time, Lord, I pray for freedom for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would tear down walls that we've built up, maybe even to protect ourselves. That you would break through barriers and that you would awaken our hearts to who you want us to be. Do that work, Lord, in each of us right here and right now. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's your chance to respond, friends. We won't sing long. So if you want to make a decision, this is your chance. Stand and sing with me as you come.